even if it's a relationship that's not good, I think you also need to be a leader who shows compassion for the people who work with you and also in foreign policy sense for the country you're working in. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. Today we're joined by Ambassador Christy Kenny, who's currently Counselor of the U.S. Department of State and previously served as Ambassador to Ecuador, the Philippines, and Thailand. She's on campus for an event hosted by the Center for Public Leadership. Madam Ambassador, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Call me Christy. All right. Well, first of all, uh, if there's any confusion out there, um, can you tell me about your role as counsel of the State Department? That's that's different than the Office of Legal Advisor, which right. you might get confused with. It's one of those titles that confuses a lot of people. It is. I'm essentially our number four official, and it means I am, if you will, sort of a minister without portfolio for the Secretary of State. So I take on any projects the Secretary of State needs someone to take on, any meeting that has to happen, uh, a huge range of activities. Mm -hmm. So it kind of means I'm a free agent. What that usually means is I'm really busy. (laughs) As I'm sure all the people at the State Department are. Are there any particular projects that you've been working on recently that you find uh, especially interesting? Well, Secretary Kerry asked me, for example, to go to Argentina to meet. They had a brand new government, new election after 12 years of a very rocky U.S. relationship with the previous government, mm-hmm. he asked me to go down as the most senior official to visit to essentially get a sense. Is this going to be a government, this new one we could work with? Who are they? What do they sound like? What is the opposition saying? I speak fluent Spanish. Mm-hmm. So it was a fantastic mission, and they turned out to be a terrific government. And I came back and recommended that the president visit, and the president's gone and visited. So we're off to a great start. But those are the kinds of projects I periodically get given. Secretary just asked me right before I came up here if I would take a look at the work we're doing for a corruption summit that the United Kingdom is hosting. Wants to be sure we've got the right things teed up. We can really make some progress, more than just words. So when I get back on Thursday morning, I'll start work. Fantastic. So uh, you've been in the Foreign Service for quite a while now. Um, You first became, your your first ambassadorship came in the early 2000s. Can you tell me the story of what what that was like for you, hearing that you were nominated for the first time? It was pretty exciting. It's one of those, again, I've loved my career as a diplomat, and I have to be honest, I've never thought, oh, I need the big title. You know, I love being out in the world, representing our country, the sense that you might make a difference in the world, that you could make things better, build bridges. So I have to be honest, I'm not one of those people who was ever a diplomat just to get the title ambassador. So I was a little bit surprised, actually, when Secretary of State then Colin Powell called and said, we think you should go as ambassador and we think you should go to Ecuador. I said, okay, <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. That sounds interesting. <laughs> Why not? Sure. Uh, you know, one of those... Well, gosh, sure. What a great idea. It sounds interesting. And it was fascinating. Ecuador is beautiful and colorful and very, very interesting. Poor, but, um, you know, a really interesting place to be. Had you done a lot of uh, work in South America or Central America? I have a master's degree in Latin American studies. Mm -hmm. And I had prior to that time served in Argentina and in Chile and spent some time in some of the other Latin American countries. Did my master's work in Guatemala and Central America. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I had some background, but I'd never been in Ecuador. And it's a very different high Andes, big high mountains, indigenous peoples, 
very different feel to it than a lot of the rest of the continent. Mm-hmm. I had read that uh, when you were appointed for your, your second ambassadorial post in the Philippines, um, you were kind of surprised because you weren't uh, an expert on the Philippines or, or Asia. Do you think it's important for uh, diplomats to have that kind of background um, before they go off and you know represent the United States elsewhere? And if whether you do or not, do you think it yields a different kind of relationship? Well, I think it's useful. The ideal scenario is the right personality, the right leadership and management skills, coupled, of course, with the best regional area expertise. In my case, the Secretary of State was looking, felt like we needed stronger leadership of our embassy in the Philippines, felt like we needed to move our relationship a little bit forward in a lot of areas. And, you know, lucky me, I must have just popped up at the right moment and so called and said, we'd like you to go to the Philippines. And I've obviously never been to the Philippines. But Mm -hmm. again, some of the things we're trained as, as diplomats were worldwide available. We're supposed to be generalists. We're supposed to be smart people who can talk to outsiders, learn, read, study. So it was interesting. It was harder for me to go to the Philippines because I hadn't been serving in Asia. So I felt like it took me longer to get my own comfort level. Mm-hmm. You know, I could do the job, but to really feel like you understood the people and understood where their emotions and sentiments were coming from. I will also tell you, it's a fascinating thing to do because every one of your senses is wide awake. You're taking right. in everything. Nothing looks familiar. Mm-hmm. And every day you're looking at how do we how do I get at this? How do I, you know, build a relationship here? And so I, in many ways, it was one of the more fascinating experiences for me. Do you think that brought kind of a, a, a inspirational quality that if you had been very familiar with the area, you may not have brought with you? Well, one of the Secretary of State's ideas at the time was wanted some fresh thinking. Mm-hmm. It didn't want, you know, we've had a long relationship with the Philippines, treaty ally, mm-hmm. you know, they were a colony once. And her idea by then, it was Secretary Condoleezza Rice, was she wanted something fresher, more modern. So she was less troubled by an area expert than by looking at somebody she thought could bring some innovation and some strong leadership. It's a very large embassy, mm-hmm. lots of parts of the U.S. government there. So I think her idea was she wanted somebody who could pull all those strands together. So there are many styles of leadership. Do you find that there are certain ones that lend themselves particularly well to diplomacy? Well, as you say, there are many styles, and some of it depends on where you're serving in the world. I don't think there's any one style of leadership that works all over the world. Some countries, as you know, with whom we have a complicated and difficult relationship some places like the Philippines, longtime friends, so a very different style. But in terms of running an embassy, remember embassies aren't just the State Department. My last embassy in Thailand, we had 61 U.S. government agencies. So when I met with the heads of all my sections and agencies, they had a pretty full room. Right. So, you know, you are looking for certain qualities. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability to communicate with your team, up, down, around, communicate with people around you. You know, the ability to show competence and confidence in what you're doing. I think you also need to be a leader who shows compassion <laughs> for the people who work with you and also in foreign policy sense for the country you're working in. You mm-hmm. have to have some empathy, some ability, even if it's a relationship that's not good, 
some empathy and understanding, some compassion for where they come from. Did you apply those those kinds of uh, did you apply that towards when you were team building and uh, trying to figure out how your staff looked? Very much. I mean, my view is that I'm not a one man show. I'm very much a, if you have a team, it's because I want them to live up to their potential. I want them to be strong, confident, creative, want to hear new ideas. And so, to my mind, what you have to do is empower your team. And as you know, there are always a few members of the team who, who are slower to get that. And, you know, you have to spend more time with them. If you've ever read leadership books, sometimes the people who are the most needy, the least on your wavelength, are the ones that have to be kept the closest because they have to really be brought along and shown how they contribute and what you expect of them. For all of my current and past coworkers, that has never been true. I, I have no <laughs> idea what she's talking exactly. about. Exactly. <laughs> Me neither. Um, can you actually break down what it's like for an ambassador to come into a new situation? I imagine there are people who have been there for a long time, um, but you're expected to build your own team. How do you kind of work that system to get your, your mission accomplished? What I start by doing is, of course, a lot of listening, but also you tell the people who work for you, you know, you are the experts. I'm counting on you. I expect to hear from you. I want your ideas. I want your input. I want your advice. Don't be shy. You can email me. You can stop in my door. You can tweet me. You can send me a Facebook message. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not fussy. But, you know, you're not here to wait for instructions from me. You're here to help me shape what we're doing. And then you start out in the country. You meet with senior officials and you listen. How's our relationship? What are we doing? What does it look like? Where do you see? And after, and then go out and talk to NGOs and universities, everybody you can think of, get out of the capital city. And after about a month or two, you start to get a picture of this is where we can go. Mm -hmm. Now you have to alter that as you know throughout, but you start to get a much clearer picture of I see what we could get done. Mm -hmm. And I see what's going to be hard to do, but maybe possible. And then what's in the category of might not happen. Uh, you mentioned social media. You may be one of the mo most prolific social media mm -hmm. users of our entire diplomatic corps. Uh, I don't know, maybe save Secretary Kerry himself. <laughs> um, uh, can you tell me, how, how did you get into social media so uh, deeply and, and what value do you find? It is a tremendous, I'll start at the back end and say it's a tremendous value. First of all, it's fun personally. And a lot of times, if I'm putting something on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, it's sharing something fun and interesting, pictures of Boston, mm -hmm. things we're doing. But I also found it a good way to communicate transparency. In a lot of countries, people don't really know what the U.S. Embassy is doing and what is the U.S. Ambassador doing. Happy to say, here's where I am. Here's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. With the caveat, sometimes you're meeting with dissidents or human rights activists, people who are not comfortable with you talking about. So mm -hmm. I often ask people, do you have any objections? If I tweet this, can I put a picture of this out? So some ways you're adding transparency. And then the, the next most interesting part is you're hearing back from people. So now I have friends and online friends all over the world. And in any given day, I can be talking NBA with my Filipino pals. I've been online a lot with my friends in Ecuador on Twitter and Facebook. How are they doing after the earthquake? How are mm -hmm. my friends? How, what are we hearing? It, it can be all over. I just got on the way in here, so a tweet from somebody in Fiji. I know. You never know. Because <laughs> I met with a Fijian official last week, so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you never know what you'll hear. The idea of embassies uh, is pretty old. 
uh, and it was necessary because of the slowness of communication. There had to be a representative of the U.S. government in other countries in order to represent interests. Of course, that's no longer true. Um, I, I, you know, commu- instant communication can be had between anybody. Sure. Um, is the idea of embassies, I mean, how how has that changed? How has the role of an ambassador changed because of all of, the, all of that? Well, our world is wired. You're mm-hmm. right. We're, we're all connected. Everybody around the world can listen in on your podcast if they want or mm-hmm. follow you on Facebook or Twitter, CCNN. You know, the world is at everyone's fingertips. What I would say is that doesn't eliminate the need for personal understanding. Secretary Kerry's a great example of that. You watch him travel all over the world, sit down and meet with people. He just finished hours ago meeting with his Iranian counterpart in New York. Three hours, the two of them in a room. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't a substitute for that. What I'd say is that all of the rest of this adds. It broadens the dimension. It's no longer just a government and a government talking to each other. You have universities talking to each other. You have people who might not have been a part of the conversation in the past who suddenly are, mm-hmm. can express their views and opinions, it takes some getting used to. I'd argue it makes our relations and our diplomacy better, richer, deeper, more broad-gauged, and that foreign policy today is no longer an ambassador talking to a foreign minister. You have businesses, you have universities, you have NGOs, you have other partners, other nations we're dealing with. It's more complicated. At the same time, I think it's more exciting. And it really does offer you the prospect to maybe work on areas you never thought of before. When I was in Thailand, the Thais had a military coup, which wasn't obviously consistent with U.S. views on democracy. And some of the work we did by our laws has to be cut off. But where we were able to continue a really strong relationship was in health. We do a lot of health research with the Thais. We're working on an HIV-AIDS vaccine with them, a dengue vaccine. And because so much of that dialogue is carried on between scientists, between universities, with government support and encouragement, but it's sort of a good example of work where the governments are merely giving some support and some encouragement, but the real day-to-day work goes on between health professionals. Mm Going through something like that, where uh, you know you have a coup in the in the country in your host country, uh, I can't. I only imagine how stressful things must have been. <laughs> they were. Do you think it takes a certain kind of temper- temperament to uh, handle the relationship and and you know even decide who you <laughs> what the relationship is that you're handling? You know, I think diplomats probably always, but certainly today, have to be very prepared to manage crises. And whether it is a political crisis, a coup in the country, which by definition changes our relationship. And not only do you have to figure out what is going on in the country, what is the nature of this, where is it coming from, are American citizens safe, how does this affect our work? But then you have to chart how does our relationship go forward and in what way Mm -hmm. and how do we express our views while understanding this is a sovereign nation and they'll make their own decisions, or if it's a natural disaster. You right. know, earthquakes in Ecuador, when I was in the Philippines, they were very typhoon prone, mm-hmm. where similarly you have something that can happen very quickly mm-hmm. that forces you immediately to say, you know, what do we know, what do we need to do, how are our staff, our facilities, how are American citizens, and how does this impact our policy? Mm-hmm. 
So you really just have to get quite good at that very quickly, having that checklist in your mind. Of course, those disasters are, are you know, anomalies. They're are just that. They're anomalies. Mm-hmm. They You can never really guess what exactly is going to happen. Um, well, I, I suppose Thailand has had the most coups They've of They've had a lot of coups, although I will century. tell you that we did not expect this particular one. <laughs> they were having the, the two sides that were protesting were actually having very productive discussions and we actually thought it was headed in a very good direction but huh. that was incorrect before you mentioned how uh, you never really wanted the the big title in order to be able to lead um, obviously leadership is a lot of it is about inspiring motivating people to action how do you do that how do you use that uh, or how do you use your position um, to to motivate people well, I think a lot of getting things done in today's world, as you're right, we don't, the United States maybe never got to, but we certainly don't today to say, you're going to do this. We, so you're really inspiring people to come up with solutions, ways to make something up and ways to make it so it's a win-win for everyone. Is this something we can achieve? This seems like it would be a good idea. Whether it's negotiating a trade agreement, developing a vaccine, you know, how do we get to where we need to go? Mm-hmm. Or how do we perform a good role. And my view is you want to be really clear. You have to communicate very, very clearly, and you may have to keep re-communicating it. And you may need a plan B. You communicate to your supervisors above, the people below, and out. Mm-hmm. And you figure out what you can say and do publicly, too. Sometimes there are secret talks, but most of the time they're not. You're talking about issues, you know, this is what we're hoping to do in this country. Mm-hmm. We'll be working with civil society ministers and others. But you really have to keep inspiring people. You, you didn't become a diplomat, as I always say in sort of NBA terms, to sit on the bench. You, know, you joined to play. Mm-hmm. So come up with ideas. And if idea one doesn't work, you know, maybe it's not the time or maybe there's a better way or there's another idea. Mm-hmm. Do you think that equally applies to uh, those, those under the ambassadorial level? Well, my view is you don't have to have a title to lead. Mm-hmm. And some of the best and brightest ideas often come completely from someone else. And it's you know incumbent on them or a smart boss to recognize it, as I'm sure you do in your team brings you great ideas. I wanted to ask a little bit about the about current events, but I don't think we're going to have enough time, unfortunately, to, we'll get, do it, that to, another give, time. to, to give it a, a fair reading. But before we wrap up, um, I just want to get your take on the current state of the State Department. Mm-hmm. Um, we currently live in a world where the most imminent threats to to American the American people are non-state actors. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the role of the State Department when that is the case? And it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, we, you and I have been talking about the upside of our connected, innovative, exciting world. There's a downside. And there are a whole host of non-state actors that have one agenda, and that is to destroy, to hurt, to damage. And so the State Department has some very clear roles. You know, first of all, to help governments, businesses, NGOs combat that, help them. In some cases, that's easier. Some cases, places like Libya, very, very complicated. Also, to help on the, we were just talking social media, help many people, many governments, NGOs, find ways to put out an alternative message. Mm-hmm. And also we use a lot of our development assistance. You know, a lot of times people become radicalized because they don't see another option. They don't have a job, they don't see a future. You know, we're very lucky as Americans 
Most of us do see a future. We know that there are good paths forward for most of us. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some countries where that is not clear and where you've had centuries of violence. You've had cases like Libya, militias, an unclear, shaky government formation. You know, what is your path out? Mm-hmm. And so to work with our colleagues, USAID, Peace Corps, the Department of Agriculture, you know, how can we help build some industry, some livelihood? And that's another way we work on it. Well, Ambassador Christy Kenny is counselor of the department of the U.S. State Department. Christy, thanks so much for joining us. Matt, it's my great pleasure. Thanks very much. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard Public Affairs, and to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast. Thank you.